in the realm of healthy self-governance, the nonprofit sector, Bridge Alliance, member organization communities, what does collaboration look like? On the surface, it's a series of emails, it's phone calls, it's scheduled Zoom meetings, it's combining resources. But on a deeper level, what is collaboration? And more importantly, what does a collaborative or synergetic environment look like? Well, Robert Porter Lynch, collaborative environment expert, is here to give us tools as to how we can best foster collaboration for a better community, a better country, and ultimately a better world. Uh, my name is Robert Porter Lynch, and my work has been to help find ways in which we can get people to work together better, uh, particularly across boundaries. And those boundaries can be international boundaries, they could be uh, racial boundaries, they could be political boundaries. But um, how do you get people to actually to work together? How do you get them to start to recognize the value of differences? And uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis today on diversity. And I think we actually sub-optimize diversity. We don't recognize that diversity is one of the greatest engines of innovation. And as long as people trust each other, and I'll say that with emphasis, as long as people trust each other, when you put people with different perspectives together in a room, they can actually create new possibilities, new ideas, new thinking, new paradigm shifts. If everybody in the same room thinks alike, one is unnecessary when it comes to uh, innovation, because all innovation comes from this tension of us debating back and forth. That's what the founding fathers did. It's what the Greeks did to create innovation. It's what every great culture does. If it's going to be a great culture is actually um, creating this dynamic tension in an environment of trust that enables people to solve problems. What a great concept and way to explain uh, the necessity of diversity. A lot of people don't think of it that way. And a lot of people also don't think of how they think of diversity. They just understand mm -hmm. what the word is and they have their own notions about it and they're comfortable with it. So thank you for that. What, uh, in your opinion, are the differences between general collaboration amongst organizations and community leaders in creating a collaborative environment? Well, that's a, actually a very, very good question. And let me make a few distinctions here. Many people think that collaborative environments are congenial. You go to a cocktail party, for example, and everybody's nice to each other, but nobody really gets down to underneath the surface. It's all superficial. How's the weather? How's the kids? That sort of thing. Yeah. You find in many environments, you'll find that they are very congenial on the surface. Underneath, you'll find backstabbing going on all the time. You find people who are um, uh, essentially doing character assassination. They're passive aggressive, but on the surface, it all looks beautiful. That's a congenial environment. A collaborative environment is actually sometimes filled with tension and it's filled with debates and sometimes even arguments, but everybody knows that there's a mission and a purpose. That's a greater mission and purpose that we all believe in. And when that kind of environment starts to manifest itself and people trust that they're going to end up with a better outcome because they know as a whole, the greater good has to manifest. Everybody has to win in the game. 
no matter who's in the game, we know that everybody's got to win and we're committed to that. Then we have a collaborative environment. And I'll make some other distinctions about environments in a, in a few moments, but that's what we're really aiming at. And if you've ever been in an environment like that, you know how powerful, how wonderful it actually can be. You know how stimulating it can be and synergistic. Uh, if you've never been in an environment like that, uh, that's part of the journey to uh, give people that experience. Um, you mentioned having different backgrounds being the key player in having a diverse environment. How can people of greatly differing backgrounds, even conflicting backgrounds, um, collaborate and create a synergetic environment? Excellent question. And I'm glad you asked it because it is the challenge of the day. If you think about that question you just asked, how do you get diverse people to start to come together and solve a problem? If we can't solve that problem, where is civilization going to go? So that's the, the central theme of what you're really asking here is that if we can't solve this problem, we are in for one hurricane of a future. So what, what do we have to do to start with that? And that's one of the reasons why I've embarked on this particular journey that started over 50 years ago. And I'll just tell you very, very briefly, I was a military um, war veteran, uh, served in Vietnam in combat, and I'm not going to get into what the details of war looks like. Watch a movie if you want. But one of the things that came away from the war, recognizing that if, as our technology got more and more hostile and we could kill with more accuracy, bigger and faster, if we don't keep people from fighting each other, no defense system in the world is going to be worthwhile and our life will not be worthwhile. And so I embarked on a journey starting in the 1972 to find a way to get people to work together better. What we learned is that all human endeavors happens with a design and there's a design for everything. And if you can look at the design of how great communities, great leaders, great uh, groups of people come together to do wonderful things and take it apart and look at the details of what actually happened. There's a design architecture that underpins all of collaborative systems. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've spent, and I tell you, this took a lot of time. We spent 50 years figuring out what's the architecture, what's the design of a system that actually is highly collaborative. If you're anything like me, the word architecture, design, these things sound complex. <laughs> they, they almost scare me. Um, but I asked Robert, I said, can we break this down into components? What components make up a collaborative environment? And he enlightened me. And it's unqualifyingly the most important one is trust. Because if you can't trust another person, you cannot collaborate with them. You'll keep them at arm's length. You will always worry about what we call FUD. And this is an important acronym and FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, doubt, and distrust. And whenever people can't trust someone, FUD comes into play. And if you wanna watch what happened in the last four years, I had never seen, uh, by the way, I'm a bit of a historian. So you might just check in the background of, you know, I live in a very kind of historic environment. I have never seen in our lifetimes in any place in the 20th century, the amount of fear, uncertainty, doubt, and distrust 
existed in the American culture to the level that it has, and we are suffering the aftermath of FUD. So how to build trust is very, very important, and that gets us into how to build culture. I, I love that, and um, I, I, I think that being a historian is a great way to be uh, analytical of your current circumstances because human patterns always repeat themselves. And so when you understand- They do. You can understand where current culture may be going and how to change it. Have we ever in our lives thought how our individual cultures are either enabling or hindering us from collaboration? Let's talk. What I do want to know uh, based on looking at your website is an explanation of the transcendent design culture, which brings out the best in humans. Can you elaborate on how to get rid of FUD? How can we <laughs> build trust, right? In an environment where we don't know everyone that we're working with as long as we've known family members or, or close people that we trust. So how can we do that? And what's supposed to be, uh, or what is considered to be a corporate non-personal environment? Well, first of all, how do you get to bring out the best in other people. And the first thing you have to do is say, that's my intention, to bring out the best in people. Mm. And that's a leadership skill. It's also a follower skill, because if you say, as your belief system, that people can be inherently good, and I'll be very, very clear, we certainly have seen evil in operation in too many ways, but 95% of the human race and I say 95%, it could be 97, it could be 93, depends on where, where we are, but it's basically the large majority of all human beings are wired in their DNA in three patterns of behavior. And you've seen these patterns of behavior. One is adversarial. They'll fight, people will kill, people will argue, they will harm each other. And that is a pattern that's built into our, what I'd call our animalistic behavior that's part of our DNA. There's another part of our DNA that's very, very transactional. And you see a lot of that today, where in a transactional environment says, Shakira, I'll do this for you if you do that for me. As an example, you're doing this webcast, but I gave you no conditions that you had to ask these questions or those questions. I didn't give you any uh, precepts that if you do this for me, I'll do that for you because I didn't want to have a transactional engagement with you. I wanted the third pattern, which is a collaborative one, which is one where we just interact and we build on each other and we try to bring out the best in each other. So this is a leadership issue. Number one, are leaders looking for and trying to develop a collaborative environment that brings out the best in people? Or are they looking to do something else or are they just not even aware of what they're doing? Or are they grabbing a little bit from this advisor and they watch a little bit of Fox News and Sean Hannity bangs on somebody and then they, you know, turn on another station and they listen to their minister and their ministers, you know, doing, giving them another set of directions and they muddle that all up together and then they give confused signals to people. So the transcendent way to start to approach this essentially is to hook into the number one leverage point that everybody has, and that's culture. Why is culture so important? What actually is culture? What does culture mean? And many pe people think it's soft and fuzzy. It's not. Culture was designed by human beings to enable 
the brain's pattern recognition system to understand how humans are working and how we should respond. So culture is what the brain starts to see and experience that says, oh, this is what the operating system of this particular group of people is. And by the same token, it also enables the brain to use its prediction capabilities to prepare for the future. Now, you know, we all do this. For example, we want to know what's the weather going to be uh, today for the rest of the day? Should I wear a raincoat or, you know, should I wear an overcoat or should I just go in my shorts? Mm -hmm. So the question of being able to predict the future. So the brain wants to know as it enters into a group of people, are these people going to be hostile? Or are they going to be friendly? Are these people going to welcome me? Or are they going to put me over at the, in the back of the room or the back of the bus? And so that's what culture essentially does is it enables you to understand what's the, what should I be believing? Because what I believe is what I'm going to perceive, which is what I'm going to conceive, which is what I'm going to achieve. And I'll receive back in return, which will reinforce the belief system that I have. And that's what essentially a culture does. So it's important to understand where culture fits in this whole game. And I want you to think of culture like the operating system of your computer. It gives instructions on how to process information. And one of the things about culture that I want to give as a warning here is beware of anybody who discounts the importance of culture. If somebody doesn't believe in the importance of culture, there's going to be trouble. Somebody's going to say, well, culture is too soft. It's too fuzzy. It doesn't count. It's the determinant of human behavior more than anything else. If you want to watch why people do what they do, it's not their personality that's number one. It's not even the television that they watch. It's the culture of the people around them that will guide them as to whether they should do something or not do something. So as you well know, we're right in the middle of the, the George Floyd trial. Why did the police officer that killed George Floyd do what he did? Because he came out of a culture that didn't respect and cherish the dignity of the human spirit, period. He looked at George Floyd as someone who was less than him, perhaps even less than human. And so that's why culture is important. I couldn't agree more. And, and what's ironic uh, at the moment is I had a conversation yesterday with uh, an extreme existentialist who disagreed. Um, specifically, we were talking about male uh, characteristics and how patriarchy has formed what's normal for men um, and what's normal for women and the differences between the two. And uh, his existentialist point of view was that people just do what people do. Everyone has functions and there is nothing behind it. People just have actions. And I completely disagree. I do think that culture and what's within our proximity and what we experience individually plays a large part. It plays into everything that we do as people. So I, I completely agree. As both a historian and a human behaviorist and an organizational development specialist, I can tell you that the existentialist is wrong. And he's wrong because there's no evidence for that. And I'll just give you a, a, a simple example. You know, we talk about the dark ages at the end of the fall of Rome, and believe me, the fall of Rome was a dark age. And then, you know, the Renaissance, for example, and the Middle Ages in between. Why were the dark ages dark? You know, they didn't create any new universities to speak of. There were no great, you know, pieces of literature. There are a few exceptions, obviously, to this. Uh, there were no great universities that were created. 
So why were they dark? It's because the culture was dark. It's because of the people's belief systems in the evil or that other people would take things from them. And then you get the Age of Enlightenment. We fought in the American Revolution in the period of, of the founding fathers creating what they created. If you look at it, and, and I'm not saying the founding fathers were perfect, believe me, we all know they weren't. But if you look at it in the context of the era, what was done by the founding fathers in Philadelphia to envision a world that could work, that brought out the best in human beings as a departure from anything that had happened before in the previous 2000 years. It wasn't since the Greeks that that kind of thinking had ever occurred. And it created a culture that has been an inspirational culture. We have our faults, but you know it's the commitment to fix those faults. So if culture is the number one determinant in human behavior, what creates culture? That's leadership. And leaders will set the tone, they will set the rules, they will set the configurations, the norms, the speak, what is pro what's of priority, what do we put in our time schedule as in terms of what comes first versus second. And so leaders will determine this. And if you'll just notice uh, how stark the difference is between President Trump and President Biden, they are leading with two totally different leadership styles. And it's more than a style, it's a set of commitments and underpinnings as to what leadership really means. And so that's why leadership has the biggest impact and the choice, not just the choice of leaders, but the type of leader. In the conversation that you just had with your existentialist friend about the role of men and role of women, one of the things that is very, very stark to me in today's world is that there are too many men who do not understand what good leadership is, and it's because they don't have a clear sense of what their identity is. And I'm going to use a gross generalization here, but I'm going to talk about the culture of masculinity, you know, the, the lonesome hero. That's not the kind of male leader that I think of as the best leaders. The best leaders are the collaborative leaders. They're the builders. They're the team builders. And, you know, there are many, many great examples of collaborative leadership in this world today. And we could easily go to sports, for example, and you could see how collaborative leadership wins continuously in a high trust environment in sports and it wins in business and it wins in government as well. I like to, to think of a good leader as someone who embodies the bronze, silver and gold mentality. Um, mm -hmm. Someone who finds value in differences because we need different types of people for different things. And that is, in my opinion, how you foster a diverse environment and not have it be a competition of whose characteristics are more important or superior, but rather what are, are they good for? Because everyone has a role to play in society and everyone has to be different in order to play that role to their best ability. Exactly. And, and once we make that commitment to a collaborative culture and to bring out the best in people, then we can form the teams, then we can form relationships. And synergy to me is the deepest yearning of the human soul. We all want to find that, to have how to find that great dance partner in life, to use a metaphor, and to make the music work for us. And to be able to create something that feels almost effortless because the Trust is there that our partner or partners will do the right thing at the right time.
even if it's something that is not in their own personal self-interest, they do it because they know it's in the interest of the greater good. So in terms of what drives culture itself, my professor in, uh, in college said very clearly, he said, the trust determines the pathways of history, the destinies of nations, and the fate of people. And that trust, if you can get trust to work, then it will determine the best outcomes for culture. And here are the outcomes, and I'm being simplistic here, but it's, it's useful to see it in simplicity. That essentially human beings, as I described earlier, can be either adversarial, transactional, or collaborative, or they can be some mixture of all of those. You can muddle them all up together. So when trust is not there, we have an adversarial culture. And that should challenge us today to look at the issue of our culture in America as a culture. How adversarial are we today as opposed to where we might have been 50 or 60 or 70 years ago? And I can tell you this, that if you look at the analysis of trust in institutions, you'll see that the downward curve in trust since the 1960s in our institutions today, there is no time in American history in at least the last 50 or 60 years when we've been doing these studies, the trust has been so low in our institutions. And that's the adversarial culture is indicative of that. Now let's make one thing clear. Robert is in no way saying that historical distrust and current distrust is unjustified. There are decades of events that have caused said distrust. However, distrust is what caused these events. Distrust is what came out of these events. And distrust is what is causing the current culture at the moment. Then there's a transactional culture. Everything's a deal. Every, you know, I'll make you a deal, Shakira. You know, uh, you do this for the, me if I do that for you. And that's, I guess, okay at times, but it doesn't bring out the best in people. And certainly, you know, if we're doing that in everything that we do and in our interactions with people, we suboptimize everything. So, you know, part of the diversity movement in America today reminds me of the transaction. Okay, what we'll do is we'll do this for blacks, you know, if blacks uh, get off our back. Now, uh, by the way, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that that's what I think a lot of the diversity movement is, is that uh, we do it because, oh, it's nice to do because it fits with American democracy rules and regulations and the law says we need to do it. Now, I guess as a minimum, I'll just say that's okay. It's not really okay, but you know, it'll have to do, but that's not good enough. You know, just look at a great sports team. <laughs> you know, look at American football, which is very popular. Do you ever see any teams of all whites or all blacks? <laughs> or a basketball team of all whites and all blacks? No, they all work together. <laughs> and, and that's what wins football games. <laughs> and, and it wins in life too. So the collaborative pathway is the pathway that trust brings us and that's why trust is so important unfortunately the distrust in uh in our systems is what's causing uh or at least it's a part of what's causing our distrust in each other as individuals because when we support institutions then the people that don't trust those institutions don't trust us as individuals we then get generalized based on what we support instead mm -hmm. Um, instead of people getting to know one another on an individual level, 
or even getting to know someone on a personal level to understand why they have certain trust in certain systems. Where are they coming from? What culture are they coming from that has shaped their views? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the question again is, how do you bring out the best in the human spirit in people? And how do you start to build a culture? And we're going to give a real easy kind of acronym for any leader or even a group of people that says, I want to build a good culture. What does that look like? And the acronym is START, S-T-A-R-T. The S stands for spirit. What kind of a spirit do I want to have in this organization? Is it a dead spirit? Is it an antagonistic spirit? Is it a healthy spirit? The second one is trust and time. And those two things really go together. We used to think of them as separate, but we start to realize the intersection of trust and time makes a very, very big difference in how a culture works. The third one is how do I deal with adversity? It's all well and good how you and I are working together on this podcast right now because we're not under real adversity. Suppose we're having a real conversation one-on-one, you know, where you were in the room and somebody walked in this room and attacked you. Let's say it was just a verbal attack. What should I do? If you wanted to know what I was made of, you would know that I would be there by your side defending you. In the most Christian sense, I am my brother and sister's keeper. And if my, an attack on my brother or sister is an attack on me and I will stand behind you. That's what courage is all about. Some of these are old school qualities go way back. The R is an important one and it stands for rewards because in any culture, what are you rewarded for? And then the last one is teamwork. Your culture should, in other words, have these five qualities, good spirit, know how to work inside trust and time, deal with adversity, have the right rewards, and really emphasize teamwork. The framework for this conversation and how in-depth it is and how it is not at the surface of collaboration, which to me, a surface explanation of collaboration is literally contacting people and working with them, right? Mm -hmm. What what goes deeper into those relationships? And I think we covered a, a basic understanding of the deeper things that are needed to foster a collaborative environment. And so thank you, first off, for even taking the time to talk about this. And secondly, where can people find information on you and uh, more information on what you do at the International Collaborative Leadership Institute? Well, they can just go to our website, which is uh, www.iclinstitute.org. Or they can email me at robert at iclinstitute.org. And I'd be more than happy to respond. Uh, there's no charge for wh- what we do uh, in um, you know, just responding if they want a real, what we call action learning program or a whole set of detailed webinars. Well, we will charge a modest amount for that. But uh, certainly, we don't break anybody's piggy bank. Uh, we make sure that... Uh, Uh, our information gets out to people because that's the most important thing. A collaborative environment, it takes spirit, it takes trust in time, it takes a trustworthy response to adversity, it takes rewards, genuine rewards, and it takes teamwork, true teamwork. When the Bridge Alliance was first forming, the idea was that there is not only a multifaceted solution 
to democracy reform, community reform, societal reform, but that it's going to take a plethora of perspectives, a diverse amount of voices, a collaborative environment to truly fix this country. My name is Shakira Mills. I am the Deputy Chief of Staff for Bridge Alliance. And I thank you so much for listening to our podcast on creating a true synergetic and collaborative environment amongst your organizations, communities, and amongst the healthy self-governance movement.